It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ every weekday morning from our studio on the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Faith. You know, it's one of those ideas that uh, the devil's gone after. You know, there's certain words in Christianity that the devil obviously uh, knows that uh, it it marks a threat uh, to who he is, what he represents, what he stands for. And so he needs to take it down. And so faith is one of the key obstacle points that he wants to address and he wants to pervert the ideas of it. And then we have grace. That's another one. He wants to cheapen it. He wants to empty it of its power. Uh, Love. He wants to derange what it is. He wants to turn it into a selfish thing. The Holy Spirit. Boy, talk about a tender uh, spot for many people. You see, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet many in the church actually have a phobia of even knowing how to address the Holy Spirit. You see, the devil wants to distort ideas. One of the ways that A.W. Tozier uh, once said it is, uh, the devil wants to get us to back into our belief system. He wants to sort of make something wild-eyed and weird and then have the rest of the church go, whoa, I have nothing to do with that. And you'll see each of those topics, there was a great faith movement uh, back when I was younger and growing up, and it was a weird version of faith, if I could just say it that way. Health, wealth, and prosperity. And it was a derangement of something beautiful and wonderful. And you've seen the same thing. All the, the love movement, the romance movies and everything have taken the idea of love and have actually distorted it and contorted it into a self-focused uh, thing. And how do you feel about it as opposed to what love truly is, which is the ultimate picture of selflessness and desiring someone else's good and above your own. All of these things are so important. I'm going through a four-part series on faith and biblical faith, very specifically. And so that's what I want to dig into. The name of this series is Deciding Between the Two. And if you listen to the series as a whole, that will become more and more apparent of what that means. And so like in the last episode, I went through the two trees in the garden. And so we begin to unpack the fact that there are always twos in scripture. And even in the Garden of Eden, there's two. And there's, you know, this tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in a sense, you see Eve juxtaposed and in between the two needing to make a decision. And faith is based on that. In the very first episode, I was talking about Mary of Bethany and her pouring out the spikenard. And the essence of what faith is, is the action of faith is revealed in and through that story. She had faith in her spikenard, this very, very expensive, very valuable uh, jar, container, box of perfume, which was worth over a year's wages. And she had faith in that, but to actually put faith in Jesus, she needed to do something. She needed needed to empty or repent of her faith in the wrong thing so that she could put her faith in the right thing. And this action of faith inside of our life, many of us as Christians, we come to Christ, but we never empty our faith in the wrong things. And so we have our faith in ourself. We have faith in our finances, our investment portfolio. We have faith in our medicine cabinet. We have faith in our morning coffee to awaken us in the day. And yet what we need to do is repent of those false saviors so that we can invest our faith in the living God. So I likened faith to like a 
a, a cylinder or a glass of, uh, of polluted water where the, the glass or the cylinder is us and the pollution inside is all that is wrong. You see, God intended us to be filled with him, but instead we're filled with the wrong stuff. And so as a result, what we need to do to be able to receive his living water, his eternal life, is we need to dump out that which is currently filling us. We need to repent and believe. And so in this uh, episode, part three, I want to go through what's called the dangers of doubt. Doubt is a very real function in the human soul that needs to be addressed. And it's a perversion of something. And just like lust is a perversion of the way God created us as sexual beings, which he created us as good. It's very good. He was pleased with how he created us in the Garden of Eden, but something entered in. This sinful tendency, this sinful warping actually is going to take something that's good and it's going to twist it. This is what the enemy does. And doubt is a twisting of the way that we are wired and framed by God. And it's a very, very dangerous thing. It's not something to be meddled with. You see, doubt could oftentimes just sort of seem like a cuddly little uh, kitten, and it's not that dangerous. But if you were to see what it's really like, its claws are rather uh, dangerous, and its teeth are rather sharp and laser er, and uh, and knife-like, and it's really more like a tiger uh, than it is like a little house cat. And so doubt is not something to tinker with. Let's talk about Abraham. And I'm going to describe him as the man who had no children. So he's going to have a name change uh, from Abram to Abraham, which is a very, very significant thing actually in his life, because the meaning of his name is actually going to transform. And he's going to become something very, very different because of God's touch upon his life. His response to God in faith is actually going to create a new creature, if you want, a new man uh, known as Abraham. But he is the man who had no children, yet he's the man who has been promised many children. In fact, not just a few, but children like the sands on the seashore. So Genesis 17, 5, neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. Abram is sort of like this noble father uh, name. Ab, if you ever remember in the New Testament, Abba, that's like the most intimate form of the Hebrew word for father. So Abra, Abram, it would be like a noble father, but thy name shall be Abraham. So father of many. Now, remember, he doesn't have any kids. And so how, how do you get a name like Abraham when you have zero kids? Isn't that an amazing statement? See, it's a name that is denoting his very calling, which is that of faith. He's called the father of the faith. And because he is going to believe God even when he can't see it. Abraham. It means a father of a numberless multitude, father of so many you can't even count them. So much of Christianity, if not, I could say the entirety of Christianity is based on this same premise. God is going to commission us to live a life that in the natural sense we can't see. It's like, wait a minute, God, you want me to father many nations? How am I supposed to do that? I can't even give uh, rise to one child, let alone to nations. God says, but I can. You see, the key to faith is where you place it. If you're looking to yourself saying, but I can't do that, well, you're missing the whole point. You see, faith in yourself is not going to muster it. Faith in him, he can. Genesis 17, 17. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old and shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? So Abraham's response at first is actually sort of like ours. It's wrong. And he is going to laugh at God's promise. God is going to declare something that he's giving him the name Abraham, the child of a, or the father of a numberless multitude. 
And Abraham is going to laugh. Now, God is going to get the last laugh in this. And that's what's so, I, I actually really love that a feature in the story. Because even Isaac, the son of, that is supernatural, the son of promise that is going to come forth out of this whole scenario, his name means laughter. And so God's sort of saying, hey, any questions? Uh, I do what I say I'm going to do. Romans 4, 20 through 21. Now it's interesting because I just showed you that Abraham at the beginning of all of this drama is actually not going to function as a believer, but he is going to grow into one. And this is very similar for us. In other words, we're going to start out with a weak faith and as we believe God's out there, but can he really do that? And God is going to prove himself faithful. See, there's nothing quite like seeing the faithfulness of God because what it does is it grows our faith. So you have a penny of faith. And when you stick it in God and you say, I trust you with my penny of faith, he's going to give you back $10 worth of faith. You see, your faith grows by investing it in the one who is faithful. In other words, he's able to fully match our faith. When we put our faith and our confidence and our assurance in him, he always comes back faithful. And that's why it's so critical that we actually believe because the believing actually then increases our faith. And you're going to see that in Abraham's life. He's going to begin to put his penny in God. He's going to invest it all in God. And what's he going to begin to grow in? Faith. To the point where when it comes down to him asking, God asking Abraham for his only son to sacrifice him on the Mount of Moriah, oh, wow, what a, what a tension that would create in a father's soul. Because this is the child of promise. God said that out of this boy, that nations would come forth. And yet he's saying, could you give him up to me? And it says in the New Testament that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. In other words, he so believed his God that he could trust him even in and through the darkest corridors. Incredible. So listen to Romans 4, 20 through 21. It's going to give this picture of faith, but it's a matured faith that you're going to see grow from the laughter point in Abraham's life to this unstaggering point. It says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. When God says it, he knows that he's going to come through on it. So I have a graphic on the screen. For those of you that are getting this via podcast, you always miss my really cool graphics. But there's two trees, which is building on the last message that I gave last Monday. And on the right, you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and has the black fruit. And on the, on the left, you have uh, the, the white fruit of the tree of life. I know white and black fruit, that doesn't sound very good either way, but uh, one is the righteousness, one is the darkness. And so what we have is uh, under the tree of life, it says the promise of God. And under the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says, but that's impossible. You see, the devil's always going to question the word of God. And if you listen to the devil, and if you heed that serpent hanging from that tree, who's a liar and he's a deceiver and he wants to keep you from the life, you see what you're going to say when you hear the promise of God that's, oh, your name is now Abraham, is it's going to lead to a snicker, but that's impossible. Ha ha ha. However, what is this? I have a stick figure in the middle, which is supposed to be you and me. And what is it doing? Abraham is going to leap towards the promise of God. He's going to say, I trust my God. If he said it, he will do it. So what's happened to this sort of faith? The kind of faith that just trusts God, takes him at his word and says, if God said it, 
He can do it. It's the way a little child appropriates the words of their parent. If a, if a, if, if a parent says that Santa Claus exists, by golly, then Santa Claus exists. It's that simple to a child. However, as we mature, we begin to question everything. Now, what's funny is Santa Claus doesn't exist. Sorry to uh, give a spoiler alert on that one. And maybe we should put a warning signal in front of this podcast. But in other words, a parent can say something, a child can believe it, it doesn't mean it's true. However, there is a difference. God, when he says something, cannot help but be true because he is the truth. In him is no lie. In him is no darkness at all. He can't help but speak that which is true because he is the truth. In him is no lie. What's happened to this sort of faith that trusts God with such abandon and confidence? Luke 18, 8 sort of asks the same question. When the son of man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? Now, many of you say, oh, there's faith on the earth. That sort of faith? The sort of faith that, like a child, trusts God implicitly, that whatever God says, they believe it, and they will act accordingly? And like Abraham, they will stagger not at the promise of God through unbelief, but would be strong in faith? You see, we are not supposed to stagger. We are not supposed to hesitate. We are supposed to move forward with gusto, trusting that God's word is true. Faith is under siege today. I don't know if you've recognized this. I definitely have, because one of my passion points is faith. Faith in the word of God. It's not wishful thinking. It's factual thinking. I believe that God gave us that word, and I believe that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and I believe that God cannot lie. Therefore, I'm building my life upon that. It's rock. And as a result, my life works. I'm going to just say it bluntly. It works. My life is full of great joy and peace and love. Why? Because I build my life upon Jesus and what he says. But this is under siege. So I have on the screen the modern faith trends. There's two key things that we've seen happen. Hip doubt is one of the things. It's actually sort of cool and hip within certain sectors of Christianity to doubt the word of God, to question it. And people sort of pat you on the back and say, that's pretty cool. It's not cool in heaven. I'm just going to tell you it that way. And then the other one is doubt nights. There was this uh, mega church out in Michigan uh, that actually would host uh, these things called doubt nights. And so people would come and they'd get up in the front and they'd share their doubts uh, with everyone. And I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing that for in church? Come on. That's just everyday life that people do that. You don't need church. What you need church for is faith. Get faith nights going where we share our testimonies of God's faithfulness. We don't need to hear doubts. That's ridiculous. Don't foster that. You see, what we have fostered in the church in this generation is not the witness of the saints to the faithfulness of God. How has he fulfilled his word in your life? How has he come through? When you trusted him, he proved himself to you. Now share the story. You are a living witness, a testimonial of what our God does. Speak it. So the triumphant return of faith, understanding fact, faith, and experience. So there's a story that I've often shared. I didn't come up with it, but I'd, I'd love to get credit for it, but I can't take it. It's an old, old story. I don't know who came up with it, but it's like decades, decades old. And uh, But it's the story of fact, faith, and experience. And they're all called to walk the ridgepole of a barn. And I know that doesn't sound very difficult, but I'm just going to start with the premise. This is impossible. It's like a razor's edge. So technically no one can do it. And so fact, faith, and experience. The first one to get up is fact. And we don't use the word fact in Christianity. It's not a normal word. We use the word truth. And, and yet they're very similar. Uh, you see, fact, the difference between fact and truth is that facts are just data that's accurate, whereas truth is a person. His name is Jesus. And so the reason I like to use the term fact is because it sort of refreshes the way we look at the idea of truth. 
And a fact is that which is without exaggeration and that which is without lie. Mm, that fits really well with truth. And truth is a person named Jesus Christ. But fact is going to get up on this ridgepole and walk it and not even waver. You're like, whoa, I thought you said, Eric, that this was impossible. I know, but he's doing it. You see, the fact has come to this earth and he has lived the perfect life that no human could possibly live. And yet he has done it. You see, this is the word of God. This is the word of God in text the Bible. This is the word of God in person, Jesus Christ. This is the word of God in action, his work on the cross. You see, he has set forth a pattern for us to follow. Now, the second character's name is faith. Now, faith is you and me, and we have to make a choice. We have to decide between the two, which is the name of this whole series. See, there's two trees. You have a, a tree in front of you, the tree of life, the cross, the, the vision of what Christ has set before us. And then we have this other voice that is hollering at us from behind. But when faith fixes its gaze on the fact and begins to walk forward on this ridgepole. It's amazing, but it gains balance. And it actually is able to pull off the impossible. I know some of you are questioning my definition of the word impossible. Eric, don't you know that the word impossible means it can't be done? I know. And yet the first two characters in my story are pulling off the impossible. Why? Because fact has come, Jesus, has come and set a pattern. And if faith firmly holds to that and follows it, believing it too will be able to gain balance and pull off an impossible life. Life would be wonderfully easy and simple if those were the only two characters, but there's a third character. This third character's name is experience. Now we could call this third character emotion, but there's another dimension of how we function as humans that oftentimes will bark at us and call to us for our attentions to turn away from the facts and towards something else. And so as a result, even when I commission you to give your life radically to Jesus, there's another part of you that will appeal and will say, oh, remember Uncle Harold? Uncle Harold was one of those radical Christians and he did this and look what happened to him. Oh yeah. Do you remember when you prayed for healing for great aunt Martha and she died anyway? There's all this stuff behind us and it's, it's like a cacophony of noise to try and bring doubt to the clear word of scripture. If faith turns and consults experience and emotion instead of consulting the facts, it loses balance and falls off the ridgepole of the barn and lands in that manure pile at the bottom of the barn. And many of us have spent a good deal of our life in that manure pile. And you can stare up at the barn and the high lofty ridgepole up there and go, oh, wouldn't that be nice to walk that? I'm glad Jesus walked that. However, we have no expectation of walking it ourselves. And that's where faith has become wronged in our generation. You see, faith is meant to have a firm grip on that which is factual, that which is true. And it is supposed to ignore that which is experiential and that which is feelings-based. It doesn't mean your experience and your feelings don't matter. It's just that they are not the leadership of your soul. Faith fixes itself on facts and that's its great secret. Faith has to ignore experience and feelings so that it can follow the facts. Now, let me tell you about experience because experience isn't a bad character. It's just not supposed to be the leader. It's like putting your two-year-old in charge of your family. It doesn't mean your two-year-old's bad. It's just that your two-year-old was never meant to be Papa. And if he becomes Papa, you're going to have all sorts of problems. It'd be sort of a fun movie script, by the way, to see how that would play out. However, when faith follows fact, ignores experience and all of its pleas, you know what happens? Experience will actually begin to gain balance and follow faith as it follows fact. You see, your experience is actually supposed to line up. Your emotions are supposed to line up with your faith as it follows fact. But most of us never discover that because we spend our entire life following our feelings and our experiences. Faith must follow fact. 
So our word for doubt in the New Testament, it's a word called diakrino. And doubt is just its translation. It's the best way we can describe it. But this is what it means. It means to side against something. It means to ally with one over against another, to forsake a previous allegiance, to waver in support of one candidate and vote in support of another. It's like coming to God and saying, God, I'm going to vote for you in the upcoming elections. I I just really believe you're the right candidate. And then you hear the enemy over here telling you all the things that he can give you and all the things he can help you with. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. And God says, hey, I thought you were going to vote for me. Yeah, you see, I I was, but I just heard a really good argument from the devil on this one. And I'm going to go with the devil on this one. That's doubt. You see, it's to waver. It's to actually stagger before the, the clear realities of God. It's to actually question it and to believe the lie over the truth. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't sound like a good habit to get into. It isn't. Uh, it's a very dangerous one, which is why it's strictly forbade or forbade, it would be a good way of saying it, in the New Testament, in the Bible. It's not how we are supposed to function in our soul. So I have a, a graphic on the screen. And what you see is you have the two trees again, and you have our little stick figure, which is you and me. And the stick figure, what's he doing? He's reaching up into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and grabbing some of the fruit from it. You see, underneath that tree, it says the word of a liar. And on the other side, it says the word of truth. Well, it makes sense. Wouldn't we go to the word of truth? No, doubt is to actually go to the word of the liar and believe it. You see, we're still believing something. Doubt is still believing, but it's believing the word of the liar and doubting God's word. And as a result, it creates a wall between us and God. And I have it there. It's a really cool looking wall. It says the wall of doubt. And it's blocking us from the tree of life. And this is actually what happened in the Garden of Eden. Eve doubted God's word, believed the liar, and ate the fruit of the forbidden tree. And as a result, was cut off from God. Why would we continue that practice? This isn't how we were designed. Jesus is setting us free from this practice so that we could start to eat from the right tree. Well, we should do it then. Introducing the slick attorney. He's that one over here, you know, near the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with the pungent cologne, the slicked back greasy hairdo, the disturbing toothy grin that never stops yammering. He is a talker. Have you ever noticed that when you're trying to serve God, you have this voice that's always yammering your way, talking about, you know, how you you really shouldn't take it that seriously. You have to be careful about this. That's not the spirit of God. That's what I call the slick attorney. He's always making an appeal and he's questioning the clear word of God. This is what the serpent did in the Garden of Eden. This is not the Holy Spirit. This is not what the word of truth does. This is what the devil does. So in this graphic, I have the slick attorney, and that's underneath the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I have Jesus on the other side, and I have that same wall of doubt in there. You see, the word of the liar, the word of the slick attorney is the same. You see, the word of truth in Jesus is the same. And we don't want to listen to the slick attorney. Why would you believe him? He has that toothy grin, you know, the slicked back hair. He has his blob of grease streaking down his face. You even know he's a liar. You know he's in it for the money. And yet, for whatever reason, we still go to him? Why? Because he's telling us what we want to hear. God doesn't always tell us what we want to hear. He tells us what we need to hear. You see, the slick attorney will say, look, I I have your best interest in mind. I can get you a million dollars out of this uh, lawsuit. I I can make you rich. I can make this about you. And we're like, you know what? Even though I know he's a liar, I sort of like what he has to say. Keep talking, slick attorney. The wooing of the liar. This is in Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. This is like Eve walking that ridgepole and turning around and seeing the fruit in her experience and her emotion, in her desires for self-glory. No, 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 Eve. What's going to happen? She's going to fall off the ridgepole. You see, this is the wrong way to turn. But there's also the wooing of the truth. This is 1 John 3, 1. Behold, turn, see the facts. 
to see, to discern, to inspect, to examine. That's what behold means. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Do you see the love that he has bestowed upon us? Do you see the cross? Do you see the nail wounds in his hands and his feet and and the, the spear wound in his side? Do you see what he has done for you? Do you see it? See, behold, you need to make sure you're focused on the right thing. Focus on the facts. Your experience and your emotion will follow when you focus where God has asked you to focus. This is how faith works. So here's some marching orders. No diacrino. Do not examine the lion lawyer's evidence. The lion lawyer is always trying to give you something to look at. He's always giving you evidence, but that's impossible. You know, God says you can, you know, even a mountain can be picked up and thrown into the midst of the sea. And you're like, have you ever seen? The devil's always like, have you ever seen that happen? I've never seen that happen. He's always barking your way to get you to question the clear word of truth. So I want you to not turn and consult his voice. It might sound rude at first to totally ignore the devil, but that's the best thing you can do in your life. You don't need to be fair-minded with the devil. I want you to be what's called canon-minded, which means biblically-minded, focused on what God's Word says. And if anything violates God's Word, you throw it out. You take it captive to the will of Christ Jesus. Mark eleven twenty three 23 says, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt, which means no, has no diacrino in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. You know this, this idea in Romans 4, 20 through 21, which is the verse I read earlier about Abraham, which says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. That means he had no diacrino. He didn't waver. He didn't look to what the devil had to say and go, but what do you have to say, devil? Is it equal to what God says? Maybe it's even better. He didn't even consult the devil. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He didn't look to his experience and his emotions. He looked to God's word, to God's promise. Doubting God's word. That's not a smart thing to do. And I'm going to call that the barrier to truth. And that's a big deal because in John 8, 32, it says the truth shall make you free. So if you're looking to be free in this life, you don't find that by consulting your emotions and your experience. You find that by consulting the truth. I don't care if it makes you a little uncomfortable, guys. It's what sets you free. I have seen it happen so many times in Ellerslie when students focus on the truth and just say, God, I'm going to believe you. I'm just going to trust you. Even though my emotions are screaming this, even though my experience might have said this, I'm going to trust you. That's when the freedom comes. And that's when their life alters. It works because God says the truth and he knows how to save. He's given us the recipe for it. So if the truth sets you free, listen to this one. The lie shall lock you away in everlasting chains. The lie is a lie. It always tries to promise you, oh, yeah, but I'll give you this, but I'll give you this. It's going to lock you away in everlasting chains. Don't buy it. So I have the same two trees and under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, the black fruited tree, it says everlasting chains. You still have that wall of doubt between you and God. And then on the other side, everlasting freedom. Why would anyone choose everlasting chains when they could have everlasting freedom? It's a thought that goes through my head a lot. You see, I want the everlasting freedom. I understand the bait to the other tree. I understand the the desire for self-glory. Believe me. I mean, I'm living human skin as well. However, I also recognize the, the death that comes with that. And I've tasted something. That is when I die to myself, when I follow God's ways, it's hard on my natural man. But wow, it invigorates my spiritual man. I am fully alive. It is so much better. The seriousness of the command to entertain doubt is to stand against the truth, to show hospitality in the slightest degree to the pleas of the lying lawyer is to make place for the enemy, to fix the eyes of your soul and the deceiver's evidence is to lend it credence and power in your life. We don't want to do that. 
Ian Bounds, he's a great author on the topic of prayer. If you ever want to read a great book on prayer, you pick up an Ian Bounds book. It's great. He lived in the Civil War era. This is what he says. Doubts should never be cherished, nor fears harbored. Let none cherish the delusion that he is a martyr to fear and doubt. It is no credit to any man's mental capacity to cherish doubt of God, and no comfort can possibly derive from such a thought. Our eyes should be taken off self, removed from our own weakness, and allowed to rest implicitly upon God's strength. A simple, confiding faith, living day by day and casting its burden on the Lord, each hour of the day will dissipate fear, drive away misgiving, and deliver from doubt. Romans 14, 23, And he that doubts or shows diacrino, is damned if he eat, because he eats not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So that was talking about food sacrifice to idols, and Paul is uh, referring to that in Romans 14. But what's interesting is this final statement. It's a statement that goes beyond just food sacrifice to idols, and it goes into every dimension of our life, and that is whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You see, when we live as faithful Christians, we are fixed on the facts. Just depends on what God says. If God says it, that's good enough for us. And that's how we live our life. Everything we do, whether it's eating or drinking, whether it's marrying or not marrying, what we're doing is in agreement with God's word. And we are following him in and through this life. And if we do not function that way, and if we're consulting our experience and our emotion, we're not living in accordance with God's pattern. It's sin, which is why it's so critical that we fix our gaze on what God speaks, on his truth, and we follow it no matter how we feel about it. How does faith function? So I have another graphic on the screen. We have all other saviors over on one side of the tree. You remember the dark fruit. And then on this side, on the side with uh, the tree of life, there's that good fruit on it. And underneath it says Jesus. You see, we need to choose Jesus and we need to throw out all other saviors, all other imposters to the saving dimensions of our life. There is nothing else that can save us but Jesus Christ. And when we do that, what we do is we actually doubt. I know it sounds funny, but we don't doubt Jesus. We doubt all other saviors. We doubt that they are able to save. We side against them and we side for Jesus Christ. Isn't that a weird thought that a Christian should have doubt? Yeah, but not towards the truth, not towards the word of God, not towards Jesus, but towards all other saviors, towards the voice of the enemy. When the devil speaks, we go, I doubt that. I doubt that. We doubt the enemy. He's a liar. It's reasonable to doubt that. So as we close, I just want you guys to reference in your soul where you are right now in regards to the truth. Are you doubting it? Are you hesitating because what it's asking of you is not something that's comfortable? Or are you following it? I just want us to freshly rehearse unto God that he is trustworthy, that he is faithful, and he is true. We believe him. And if we do, let's follow him. God's blessings. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is streamed daily, Monday through Friday, from our studio in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekend church service is delivered live and streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Note that our live weekday in-person version of Daily Thunder is scheduled to resume this upcoming June in conjunction with our training season. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.